This episode of Capital Conversations is brought to you by MLK50Conference.com. On April 3rd and 4th, the Gospel Coalition and the ERLC are gathering a diverse group of Christian leaders in Memphis, Tennessee, for an event called MLK50, Gospel Reflections from the Mountaintop, a conference marking the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King Jr.'s death. In Memphis, we will evaluate the condition of racial unity in the American church across the past 50 years and reflect on what we might learn from the life and work of Martin Luther King Jr. Key speakers include Russell Moore, Ben Watson, John Piper, Jackie Hill Perry, Matt Chandler, and many more. Join us as we seek to be the voices within the church for racial unity. For more information and to register, visit mlk50conference.com. That's mlk50conference.com. Podcast listeners may enter code DC20 for 20% off registration. That's promo code DC20 for 20% off. We hope to see you in Memphis. Welcome to Capital Conversations, a podcast of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission of the Southern Baptist Convention. My name is Matthew Hawkins. Joining me on Capitol Hill today is Greg Glaude, Manager of State Initiatives for Right on Crime. Greg, welcome to Capital Conversations. Oh, thank you, Matthew. Thank you for having me on here. Thanks for taking the time to be with us. Um, let's get us started. What is Right on Crime, and uh, what do you occupy yourself doing there? Uh, so Right on Crime is a branch of the Texas Public Policy Foundation, which is a uh, conservative think tank located in Austin, Texas. So Right on Crime is kind of our uh, criminal justice brand. Um, and so I'm located in D.C., and um, we do criminal justice reform work from a conservative stance um, in Texas and about 35 other states right now. We actually have uh, directors in about six states. Uh, and how, just uh, as a background and uh, biography, how did you kind of get into the criminal justice space? Uh, certainly. So um, prior to coming on to Right on Crime about three years ago as a practicing attorney, in the Annapolis, Maryland area where I'm from. During law school, I actually worked at the pardons office. And, um, you know, I'd see these petitions for folks that were serving, you know, 30, 40, 50 years um, behind bars. And, you know, I'm, I was a tough on crime guy. I was a good Republican. You know, I was a good uh, staunch conservative. And, um, you know, I was like, all right, you know, you lock them up, you throw away the key, and that's how right. you keep people yeah. safe. And I started kind of thinking about that. And, you know, Growing up, I was a Greek Orthodox Christian, and the teachings of the church were some of the big pillars were no life is, you know, something that we should throw away. All life is sacred. Right. We're creating the image of God, um, and so you don't throw away a life. And it was, I kind of started thinking how difficult it was to, my philosophy to lock them up and throw away the key, and then also keeping it with, you know, the teachings of the Christian church that I've been raised with. And so kind of seeing these eye-opening, you know, stories of a guy who gets strung out on, uh, pain pills because he tours ACL in, you know, Iraq and then right. he commits a, several felonies. And, you know, that's a guy that deserves to be punished, but, you know, that's a child that loses their father, a wife right. that loses their husband. Um, and we need to start kind of ratcheting our punishment to commensurate with actually having redemption and having a second chance. So, um, Ryan and Crime was looking for someone, uh, to come on and I kind of jumped at the opportunity. On that's it. great. Um, so we can talk more about the kind of that tension between, uh, you know, uh, criminal justice uh, as far as the punishment and then redemption uh, aspect of that. Let's talk about what you are seeing as far as uh, what role is the church playing? I say the church, little C church writ largely mm -hmm. um, at the local level. Um, what role uh, positively have you seen the church play? Well, the church is absolutely integral in reentry and uh, 
providing second chances. I mean, you know, there's a lot of great programs at the the major cities that have, you know, robust funding and dollars and things like that to do all these things with for-profit, you know, groups and things like that. But a lot of small towns like in, in Texas and other places, you know, they just don't have that type of um, kind of resources to be around. So the church kind of comes in and does a lot of the work, not only in the jails and prisons, but on the outside. I mean, it's so important to kind of have these communal bonds for people coming out of prison and jail. And a lot of, for a lot of people, they never had them when they first went in, and they certainly aren't going to have them when they first come out. And so the churches are kind of this connection uh, back to the community that are so important to get them volunteering, to get them with a, a basis of faith that they may have not had prior. Um, and so these, they're extremely important. We actually went out to Lockhart, Texas uh, recently, um, and there was a, um, a sheriff there who, you know, he's a shoestring budget, 100-person bed right. jail, and, um, you know, he doesn't have the resources to bring all these programs. So he called the churches, and the churches happily came in, started doing, you know, classes on, you know, education, faith, and what have you, and they've helped them get jobs and performance. And the recidivism rates that we're seeing, you know, these people aren't going back to jail at the rates that they are in other, te- you know, Texas towns. So the church has been absolutely, you know, uh, invaluable into kind of the reentry process. Yeah. On that note, um, reflecting on limited resources, uh, is that do you see that as part of the reason why uh, conservatives in particular are, are uh, paying attention more uh, to reforms of the criminal justice system? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the big pillars of you know conservatism is looking at government spending, you know, with, with a very, you know, you know, micro, with a microscope and that shouldn't stop at the criminal justice system. I mean, just because it's, you know, talking about public safety, we should still scrutinize it. Um, and what we're seeing is these bloated correction budgets, you know, generally it's like the second or third largest portion of any state budget, wow. um, is, you know, going out of control and we're actually really not seeing the returns on public safety that we should, uh, about the U.S. average, about one in three people are going back into prison in, within three years. And you know, that's not that's a good not return helpful, on investment. Right? Yeah. So um, yeah. what we've seen in states like Texas and Georgia and Mississippi and others is that you can actually reduce incarceration and continue to see crime rates go down, see recidivism rates go down, and actually bring a conservative look at these budgets and get better returns on investment from there. So when we talk about some of those reforms, um, what are one or two examples of reforms that you're seeing at the state level that have been helpful, that are people moving towards, or maybe even at the federal level that we're trying to get done? Certainly. I, I mean, so the criminal justice system means a, a lot of different things. Right. I mean, this it's, can mean... It's big. It's huge. It's right? big. I mean, it's pretrial. It's, you know, sentencing. It's within prisons. It's reentry afterwards. Right. It's, it's all these little things, these barriers that the government puts on people. So, um, you know, a lot of the things that we're seeing that are really being beneficial is ensuring that the people that are actually stepping into the prison cell are the people that we're, you know, afraid of, not that we're just mad at. So preventing folks from going into prison in the first place and providing diversion programs, treatment centers, um, you know, things like that is extremely important to make sure that, you know, because once you get in, I mean, it's it's very difficult to break that cycle once you get out. And so we're seeing a lot of things on on pretrial diversion programs, on DUI, drug courts, veterans courts for, you know, for veterans that are coming back that are dealing with, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder and things that. So this has been extremely beneficial kind of on the front end. On the back end, what we're seeing is a lot of programming um, and a lot of, you know, breaking of barriers. You know, it's so difficult to get an occupational license in a lot of these places. So you learn these great skills sometimes in prison, either to be a barber or something like that. They're actually training barbers in Texas, you know, to get a barber's license. And if you had a felony background, you were denied a barber's license once you got out. So you had the training, but no license. No license. So you had no actual skills that you can lead. And more than likely than not, sometimes you go back to a life of crime. So we've seen great success on that, you know, kind of at the state level. Now, the federal level, um, we're seeing kind of, you know, them take the kind of the notion from the states and looking particularly at reentry. I know um, President Trump has uh, 
discussed quite a bit recently. He actually had a, a, a slew of governors in to talk mm-hmm. about reentry and what they've done at the state to kind of bring those uh, yeah. reforms at the federal level. Yeah. Um, we talked about kind of the harmonization of uh, the church's interest in redemption um, and ministry and then the state's interest in reducing recidivism and, and cost of, of criminal justice. We partnered with a group uh, that you are familiar with, um, Friends at Prison Fellowship Ministries, yep. um, founded by the late Chuck Colson, who we're both rather fond of. We partnered with that organization to release what was called the Justice Declaration mm-hmm. uh, last summer. Uh, it was a statement of Christian principles that was kind of joined by an ecumenical cross-section of uh, people in the Christian faith. Um, have you seen faith initiatives like that kind of shape hearts and minds at the local level towards uh, towards justice reform? No, absolutely. And, you know, I, I talked earlier about kind of how I had this kind of aha moment where I kind of put together the, you know, the ideals and things that I was taught in the in my in the Greek Orthodox Church and kind of dovetail that into the policies that deal with criminal justice and they kind of go hand in hand. And I think it does take sometimes, you know, hearing, you know, the Dutch Declaration or hearing someone like Chuck Colson or Craig DeRoche or Pat Nolan, you know, these great men of faith or Dr. Moore, uh, discuss these that kind of put like, well, all life's sacred. We're, you know, and all life is worth, you know, redeeming and kind of putting that in the minds of, well, it's very easy to say that about, you know, certain folks, but can we say that about those who have sinned? And that's one of the, the basic teachings of the, of the Christian church. So we have yeah. to apply those principles also to the criminal justice system and these folks that have committed offenses. Now, that doesn't mean that, you know, someone who murders or is a danger to society needs to be released. That just means they need to take responsibility for their actions. But there are a lot of folks out there that, you know, can be redeemed, can be law-abiding citizens can, um, you know, be paying taxes, can be a father to their children, um, you know, and so absolutely. I think it does sometimes take that kind of push from someone from the faith community to kind of say, you know, these teachings need to continue in your life when you're looking at other things, particularly at policy. So um, I think it's, you know, again, extremely important that, you know, the faith community kind of comes out and discusses things like that. And the Justice Declaration is just that. Yeah. So Greg, from your experience and your organization experience uh, uh, in Texas at the state level, um, in the the context of uh, what conservatives recognize as States are really the the laboratories of democracy, yep. right? So we like to see stuff at the state level, uh, in particular, uh, before it gets into federal policy. What kind of reforms and progress have you seen in Texas, for example, when uh, people started putting their heads together and say we need to figure something different out? Uh, what was a particular reform, and, and what has Texas learned? Certainly, yeah, Texas was kind of the you know the the big uh, turning point uh, for conservatives in criminal justice reform. So um, you go back to about 2005, it, it looked like Texas is already kind of you know expansive correction system that had about I think 200,000 people at that point was going to have to build more prisons to yeah. house another 17,000 people Goodness in the next gracious. five years. Yeah, wow. it's going to cost billions more dollars. And you know, kind of the the thought was, all right, well, we'll just keep building prisons, and that's what we do. We're or, you know, hang them high Texas. You know, this is what we do. And um, it was the speaker who brought Jerry Madden, who was the uh, chair of corrections at that point, who's now one of our fellows at Right on Crime. He said, don't build any more prisons. They cost too much and we yeah. can't afford it anymore. So, you know, Chairman Madden was like, well, what do I do? And so we got the help from some outside help kind of looking at what are the drivers of our prison population? Do we yeah. actually need to continue to build prisons? Can we look at the corrections budget from a conservative, you know, notion right. rather than just saying, write the blank check? And, um, you know, after a series of investigations and looking at what the drivers, you know, we kind of looked at, you know, a lot of these people that were in prison, 
it's not because they're bad people. It's because they made a mistake. They have substance abuse problems, mental health disorders, and a lot of yeah. other things. And so um, we expanded how many beds that we had for you know treatment facilities. We um, put uh, what's called swift and certain sanctions with if you're on probation. A lot of people go back to prison because they miss a meeting, they fail right. a drug test. You yeah. know, it goes all the way back to that addiction thing and not being able to keep a schedule. You know, right. these minor things. And so. We're saying, well, we should punish them, but why do we have to throw them back in prison for three years? So we yeah. made reforms like that, um, and it's been about you know eleven years now, and we've actually closed eight facilities in Texas. Wow. We've, you know, averted a lot of you know billions of dollars in correction spending, and yeah. you know, you look and you're like, well, if Texas can do that, why can't we in Georgia or Mississippi right. or Alabama? It's not like we're saying. Hey, Vermont did this, you right, know, Alabama, yeah, yeah. why don't you do the same thing? You know, you, you so Texas did this and it, yeah, like, it means something. It wakes people up a little bit. Yeah. Right. And so, you know, we've kind of seen this trend, um, particularly in conservative states, of looking and construing at your correction budget and say, where can we safely reduce this propion population and take those savings and actually put them back into the criminal justice system in places that will actually reduce recidivism. Yeah. It'll make us safer. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole point of the criminal justice system, first and foremost, is to keep uh, the public safe. And... Um, I know a lot of people when I sit down with lawmakers, you know, across the country, it's one of the things I do. They talk about why their faith is kind of gearing them towards, you know, this criminal justice issue. And it all gets back to redemption and second chances. Um, and so that's extremely promising. And like we kind of talked about before, having prison fellowship and ARLC getting involved in this is, is very, very important to kind of that movement and kind of showing the light to a lot of folks um, on this. And so, yeah. Um, you touched on something I want to ask you about. The uh, You mentioned the reality of uh, how many people in the justice system really are suffering from some form of mental health uh, challenge. Um, can you speak to kind of how dominant that is in the justice system? Because the statistics you hear when you get to talk to a sheriff or somebody, uh, it's pretty staggering about how much time and attention and resources some departments have to deal with right. uh, just for – like you say, they're not murderers or necessarily intentionally violent people, but they're have mental health issues that prevent them from you know, successfully uh, navigating uh, the, their program. Yeah, I mean, you, you talk to any sheriff or jailer or prison uh, ward, they say, you know, I'm the biggest mental health provider, you know, right. in the state or in the country. I mean, that's yeah. that's what they turn out to be. And to have either a substance abuse or mental health disorder, it's probably 80, 90% of the folks that are actually in there. You know, wow. there's, there's something going on. You ask any, yeah. any ward and law enforcement agent, they, mm-hmm. they're, they're going to tell you that. And so prison's probably not the best place to deal with a lot of those issues. Probably not. Um, and so when we're able to kind of divert folks from that and actually get them proper treatment, keep them on their medications, continue that medication uh, going from, you know, getting locked up to going being released um, is extremely important. And I think, you know, that's one of the biggest issues that's going on in the criminal justice system today is that we have to target these underlying roots of their criminogenic behavior rather than think that we're going to throw someone in prison for a year, they're going to learn their lesson and then come back out a better person. And then we're done with it. They're going to become a bigger criminal. I mean, that's what happens. I mean, um, you know, prisons are, you know, kind of criminal you. You know, you're learning from the best uh, in there. And so you're going to learn from your peers. You wouldn't, you know, if your son or daughter is sitting around, you know, the bad kids in school, yeah. you tell them, you know, you should hang out with these people because they're the people that are um, being right. We try to put them around the right people. And the same yeah. applies for someone who's in prison or someone who's going involved in the criminal justice system. Some people do need to be there. That's sure. first and foremost, absolutely. But there's a lot of folks that have these underlying root issues that we need to start investing in um, rather than just investing in a lot more prisons. Yeah. I, I think that's, that's particularly eye-opening to a lot of folks is when you have uh, departments and sheriffs in particular give that kind of sense of scale that like 80, 80% of the people in their custody are yeah. – 
have some kind of mental health. It's eye-opening. It's like, eye-opening. It's like, well, it's not exactly why we elect a sheriff. Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> or, uh, or, hire, uh, or hire a policeman. That's not what you envision those people doing as right. part of their daily work. You might think it might be in the margin. Sure. Uh, but when you start to getting that report from the field that this is the bulk of what, of what folks are dealing with, you're like, wait a minute. <laughs> This yeah, is and, pretty stunning. And they want to do more. I mean, sure, they really, yeah. you know, you almost see almost a, a gleam of desperation sometimes. You're yeah. like, I want to help these people, but there's only so much. I mean, this is not what, a jail is not supposed to be a mental health facility. It's not supposed to be a treatment center. It's supposed to be a jail. Um, you know, so these, these sheriffs aren't getting, you know, the resources or the training or the help yeah. that they need to really respond to that. And they weren't intended to. Yeah. That's not what we have. That's why we have these other facilities. But, you know, they're, they're heavily underfunded and mm-hmm. things like that because we are spending so much money on corrections. And so, you know, the, it's not always you just write more a check or you, you know, throw more taxpayer dollars at it. It's, what money are we actually using right now and how are we utilizing that effectively and we're right. not? And so we just kind of have to kind of right-size the criminal justice system to look more at these kind of diversion programs and these underlying root treatment facilities and things like that rather than just throwing money at the back end right. because at that point, it's too late for a lot it's of people. It's too late for a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. So you've talked a lot about reforms and uh, kind of quote-unquote right-sizing our criminal justice system. Um, I think that, that's been interesting for me to hear too as I've been learning more about uh, these policy initiatives that people in the field, whether you're a judge or a police officer or a parole officer, they kind of have basically binary responses, right? It's either all on and you're in jail or you're out on the street and right. there's like really no gradation. Uh, do you see more of a push for some, some more creative flexibility? Uh, Cause sometimes that's the way the statutes are written, right? You're kind of the, the people in the field who said, like, like you say, you want to, they want to serve people better. They want to, you know, give uh, mental people with mental health challenges, um, better programming to get them well, basically, but they really don't have the tools at their disposal or the law is such that they really don't have any other option. Right. Right. I mean, there's, there was this kind of big push to put a lot more rigidity in sentencing and things like that um, in the late 80s and right. 90s, um, kind of during the crack cocaine epidemics right. and, and uh, things like that. But what we saw was a lot of people that weren't intended for that rigidity were being kind of thrown into these all-encompassing um, you know, mandatory minimum sentencing right. or revocations off of you know, probation or parole um, that you know, we're looking more in the research shows that, you know, severity of sentencing is not what's actually going to stop behavior. It's kind of the swift and certainness of something. So, I mean, again, go back to punishing your child. You know, if they do something wrong, you don't tell them to sit in their room for two weeks and then you come back out and say, you're grounded for this that you did. I mean, that's not the response model. So you kind of got to say, well, you did this, you failed a drug test. We're going to throw you into jail for you know, two days or the weekend, yeah. allow you to continue and maintain your job. Right. Um, and then we're going to do that. If you fail again, it's a week. And then right. these kind of responses, and that's getting good responses. Right. So it's, it's kinda, negative, but it's swift and it's right. not, it's not perpetual with no, uh, no light at the end of the tunnel. Exactly. Yeah. And, and so we're seeing great kind of, you know, rates coming out of that. Um, there's a court in uh, Hawaii that's kind of taken on uh, from, you know, to uh-huh. across the country called the Hope Court. Yeah. Um, and that's what it does. You know, it, you know exactly, like, if I do this, this will happen. Yeah. Um, you know, there's a lot of times probation officers just don't have the, the tools to, or the time or the bandwidth to, you know, you can fail or miss meetings, multiple, multiple violations, then out of nowhere you're spending three years in prison. And right. you're like, and your, your brain doesn't really recognize why. I mean, right. it's, it's yeah. true. And so those are the types of things that we're looking at where you know, allowing judges and probation officers and jailers, like this kind of discretionary thing to say, well, you need to be punished, but here are the, some of the underlying reasons why 
this sentence is not appropriate. And right. so allowing kind of that sort of, um, you know, flexibility in sentencing is extremely important. Yeah. yeah. Well, Greg, thanks for taking the time to be with us on Capital Conversations. Um, appreciate your work in the field. Where can listeners get more information on Right on Crime and your policy initiatives? Uh, certainly, uh, rightoncrime.com um, kind of has all our research that we do. Um, everything that we support is backed by um, you know academic quality research, so you can go there. If you're looking for anything else, you know we partner with the American Conservative Union Foundation and Prison Fellowship as well. They're um, partners of the Right on Crime Initiative. So if you're looking for anything from that point, yeah, please go to there as well. Yeah, so for uh, particularly service opportunities and volunteer opportunities, prisonfellowship.org would be a great place yep. to, uh, for a partner. We'll have someone on from their shop uh, on the podcast, I'm sure, in the future. But, uh, Greg, really appreciate the work you guys do, and uh, uh, thanks for taking the time to stop by Capital Conversations. No, absolutely. Thank you again. Joining me now for a staff roundtable on Capitol Hill are our DC team, Travis, Jeff, and Stephen. Gentlemen, welcome back to the podcast. Hey, Matt. How's Glad it going? to be here. Great Good. to be back. So it's March. We uh, just came out of this interview talking to Greg Laud about criminal justice reform. Uh, that's one item that we're paying attention to. Travis, what other policy items are our team paying attention to in the short term? Yeah, I want to come back to Stephen to, to get his thoughts on, on criminal justice uh, the day that we're recording this is March 5th, which is officially the day that DACA Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, that program, was slated to expire. The expiration was placed on hold by a single federal judge in San Francisco. So in a in a way, today is a symbolic day. It's not a real deadline anymore. Um, and now what we're doing is waiting uh, to see how the situation resolves itself in the courts. I think we talked about this last week. The Supreme Court had decided not to hear an emergency appeal. So now there will be a series of appeals before the Ninth Circuit, then likely again an, an en banc uh, rehearing of the Ninth Circuit before it, it makes its way back to the court. So, you know, we're, the, the timeline of where this, where this heads is uncertain, but I, I think it's worth taking a step back to examine and and reflect on the fact that all of these sort of legalities of what happened with the program and is it suspended, this is not what DACA recipients are thinking about right now. What right. they're thinking about is the deadline has come and gone and Congress has done nothing. Agents within Congress, agents within, this is not the entire White House, but certainly some within the White House, um, actively worked against a compromise bill. Same is true, you know, in the House and the Senate. And right. so where we are is, you know, is a product of how difficult this issue is, how broken our political system is. And, you know, in, in some ways, a, re a reflection of, or maybe I should say a consequence of the sort of frenetic, I'll say chaotic sort of pace of things uh, here in D.C. It's a difficult environment to construct a, a broad bipartisan policy solution because things are shifting. The negotiation points yeah. are are always changing and, you know, the goalposts are changing. I mean, I've, you know, maybe I should throw in another metaphor. I don't know. But, <laughs> um, but I mean, I think we're in the same situation as a lot of a lot of outside groups who worked hard on this in that we're really frustrated and trying to figure out what being helpful looks like um, here, because obviously, you know, doing doing nothing is not is not a solution. Right. Um, you know, the last thing I'll say on this is, 
I was talking um, earlier with a couple members of our team in Nashville, and they were reflecting on some conversations that they've had with pastors who do work in predominantly Hispanic areas and have noticed the way that their outreach to those communities, their community development work has dramatically changed over the last six months as families are less willing to engage with people who they don't know, um, have gone further underground. You know, one of the, one of the things that, that I was a part of in Austin was, was working with, and I think Jose Ocampo um, also talked about this, one of the dreamers who we had on our, on our podcast a couple months ago, you know, was a part of one, a similar sort of program of working with police and, and local communities to help understand the way that the undocumented community views police and, you know, how to address public safety stuff. Well, all of that progress is being rolled back um, because these families are understandably scared yep. um, and are, are trying to figure out what, you know, what the future holds for them. And so, you know, I, I think the, the the reason I bring that up is just to say, you know, I think there's one way that you can look at this that is purely political and we can, you know, lament and complain about, you know, the broken political situation in Washington. And, you know, we often say on this podcast, and it's largely true that politics is downstream from culture and everything that is here is a product of, of, of what's happening there. But this is one of those situations where the disaster that this negotiation was in this city has created a backwash into our communities that is having real consequences for real families and is something that however you feel about this political issue, these folks are your neighbors, period, full stop. And if you were waiting for an opportunity or for an excuse or a time or whatever to love your neighbors, this is the time because they are scared uh, they don't know what the future holds for them. And whatever you may think about the role of the government and whatever, that in terms of your own personal ethic, my, I'm preaching myself, my own personal ethic as well. It's not optional for us as Christians. Our responsibilities is to love these folks, regardless of how they came here, regardless of what our own views of that might be. And you know, this, this is a community that's, that's scared and frightened and hurting. And I think it's, you know, this is the time for, uh, for the church to love this community, for us to pray for them and for us to pray with them, frankly. Along that note, the evangelical immigration table released today statements from all the leaders, including, uh, our president, Russell Moore doing just that calling upon Christians to pray for dreamers as we continue urging Congress to resume negotiations, to reach a permanent solution. Uh, we're tweeting out links, uh, to that statement from our ERLC account, um, as a as a reminder, Travis, to to do just that as you were as you were saying, that for for Christians they are your neighbor regardless of uh, your policy views, right. and uh, and honestly regardless of of immigration status wherever they fall on that spectrum. Right. And I also just think i I'm, I'm thinking back to a, a quote of Senator Lankford's earlier in the in the debate, which said, "Ignoring our many immigration problems is a form of amnesty that must end. Mm. Like the current status quo is just completely unacceptable, and even though it's not top of mind for many of our leaders right now, it doesn't mean it shouldn't still be top of our prayer lists. Yeah, that's right. The other thing that we're that we're working on right now is we've talked about this before the the Conscience Protection Act. I think we've dedicated a couple of episodes of this show to that yeah. to that issue, and I think we've talked before about the massive omnibus spending bill that was going to pass and then it didn't pass, um, and then it was going <laughs> to pass again. And 
so we're in one of those another one of those moments um what's what's unique about this is that you know the sort of procedural and political hurdles that that snagged the previous spending bill some of them have been cleared not all of them but but the majority of them have uh and so it now is looking like uh, there, there's a real possibility that an omnibus spending bill will pass uh, at the end of this month. And so what we're working on in the context of that is ensuring that our priorities are included in that. So the one that we've talked about the, the most and, and is our top priority is the Conscience Protection Act, which would give private right of action to victims who have been discriminated against because of their views on abortion, uh, the ability to, to sue whether it was a hospital or a state or, or whoever took an adverse action against them uh, based on their, their views towards abortion, towards their, their consciences, really, uh, give them the right to defend themselves in court for that infringement and for that violation. Uh, so obviously there's, there's a ton of other things that we're, we're working on uh, in the context of, of that spending bill, but that's the top one that we're working on right now. And, you know, the negotiations, you know, just a little inside baseball are, are sort of just ramping up. Stephen and I were over at the White House earlier today. We've uh, had meetings with several of the appropriations chairmen over the last couple of weeks to, to highlight how important this issue is for us and to the entire pro-life community. So it's an issue that we're working hard on. Um, and we hope to see some resolution. So the next spending deadline is the 23rd of March, right? That's a, is that a Friday? It's on a Friday. That sounds right. Yeah, so that's the next day that the government might shut down. <laughs> and it probably Pro- won't. Probably won't. <laughs> but, you know. but the amount of times we've had to put this on our calendar to say government funding crisis, question mark. Yeah, right, exactly. This continuing resolution again. Right, yeah, that's true. Right. Well, and, and you know, it, it is worth saying. I mean, it's it's not outside of the realm of possibility. We won't have another short-term CR before a budget deal is, you right. know, they, they save all of the really difficult issues. And we're, we're hoping that the Conscience Protection Act won't be one of those issues. But certainly it's possible that it will be one of the last issues left on the table, you know, leading up to, you know, leading up to the crisis. So sometimes what Congress will do is give themselves another week or the weekend or whatever, you know, just have another couple of days to hammer things out so that they can then pass, you know, a multi-thousand page bill with handwriting scrawled all over it that nobody has read. But <laughs> this is this is how well, things some work. Some people have read portions of them and they just <laughs> yeah. kind of, it's a shared knowledge base, right? It's a yeah. distributed yeah. knowledge across. I'm sure that's exactly what Washington right? and Jefferson had in mind. Yeah. But well, anyway. Ooh, wow. Wow. <laughs> Going idyllic on us. <laughs> Um, you just want the deliberative bodies to deliberate. That's all. There, is that too much to ask? There, there is a thing called regular order when it comes to spending. Yeah. It's, it's, it's uh, not being. I'm, I'm still new to Washington. You, know, <laughs> I, you can I get still... away with this stuff, right? <laughs> yeah, well, no, I, I still think that it's possible for things to be done a better way. But anyway, but the the Conscious Protection Act, uh, to your point, and something like the big omnibus um, and appropriations riders, which are virtually endless, it's one thing uh, for which champions. Uh, on the Hill have to negotiate with and, mm-hmm. and against other things, right? right? So the challenge is to make sure that there's not something that gets lost uh, against other priorities. Right. Well, you know, and, and I think a spending bill is a tricky situation for a lot of the issues that we care about. And part of the reason for that is that the social conservatives who care about the Conscience Protection Act, many of them are also fiscal conservatives who are not going to vote for the bill. Under any circumstance, because of the deficit or because of, you know, spending levels or because it violates uh, a pledge that they made at some point in their career. And I'm not trying to criticize that. I'm just saying it is a fact, right? And so so one of the challenges for us is that the people who care about this bill (laughs) or who care about our priorities – 
you know, it isn't as though they can come to leadership and say, hey, look, if you keep this in, then I'm a yes, because they're not a yes. So anyway, I mean, it is for sure a complex negotiation. And uh, it's part of the reason why we've been working so hard on it, you know, making sure that that all of the parties who have, you know, a, any, any amount of political leverage uh, will be equipped with the information that this is something that we care about, something that the pro-life community as a whole cares about. So... And for folks who want to visit the show notes at ERLC.com, we will post links to previous relevant podcast episodes we've mentioned. For example, our interview with Dreamers, Jose, Elisa, and Vanessa, and also our friend Melissa from the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops who joined us to talk about the Conscience Protection Act. Stephen, what are you hearing on criminal justice reform? What's the latest? Yeah, um... And we've talked about this issue several times as well on here. I think just in terms of backstory, if you think about what we would consider progress that was made during the 114th Congress, so I think 2015, 2016, particularly the second session, much in the way it was made in terms of a particular comprehensive bill that addressed both what we call front end, i.e. sentencing and back end reforms, back end being internal prison reforms, the status of criminal justice reform coming into the transition of administration was tentative at best just because of the particular rhetoric that surrounded the issue in particular, rhetoric that surrounded just justice versus, you know, law enforcement, the way in which things were framed, Sessions taking over a new role as attorney general. It, it just the question marks surfaced. ERLC has been supportive of comprehensive criminal justice reform. Uh, we've made our case. Uh, we can maybe attach notes and things to that regard. What has happened uh, in, in this, in our current session, um, has been a kind of reviving of those discussions, much of it being driven from uh, Mr. Kushner in the White House in terms of him advocating that this, this conversation be ongoing. And what we've recently heard uh, coming from the executive branch is an interest in this issue, but particularly along internal reforms or back-end reforms. That's uh, the internal prison reforms looking at risk assessments and programming, et cetera. It is what we anticipated in terms of where this administration would at least be willing to to have that conversation. What uh, complicates this issue, and complicates maybe too strong of a word, is that uh, Senator Chuck Grassley and others, particularly Grassley and Durbin, have reintroduced their comprehensive bill. They did it in October of last year, mid-month, mid-February uh, last month. The Judiciary Committee marked that bill up, voted it out in an overwhelmingly positive fashion with bipartisan support. So the question now becomes one of strategy, one of coalescing around a unified vision and goal. I sound like I'm being an idealist now. Um, <laughs> You're a coalition yeah, builder, man. You're just a coalition builder. Um, you know, what, what, what is going to be the effort um, that is coalesced around? Because the, the main question is, right, is can something like a comprehensive criminal justice reform effort uh, see positive results in this current political climate. Um, and and that, that is a question worth, worth raising. I will say this on the question, on the merits of the question, it has been our contention that sentencing reform, that is front-end reform, looking at mandatory minimums and things like that, trying to reduce certain mandatory minimums for nonviolent offenders, et cetera, that does best when it is paired with internal reforms, right? So the right. question of 
one or the other, we, along with other members of Congress, have said, if you're going to address sentencing or if you're going to address internal reforms, it'd be best to do them together, not just in terms of strategy, getting individuals who wouldn't necessarily be on the bill to be on it, but just in terms of wisdom, right? If you're going to address how long people are in prison, uh, you might want to look at what you're doing while they're in there, right? So that that And and vice versa. Right, exactly. They do well together. And then, too, it's just my opinion that, that if you pursue internal reforms, and leave sentencing off. Um, that just makes it that much more, much harder to get sentencing reform. And so, yeah, that's right. Um, so we they need to go together if we really want. If the you want both outcome. of them, if you want, if you want to see sentencing get done, then you need to you need to you pair, pair it with. with yeah. yeah. In in the context of the markup, uh, Senator Grassley's markup of his comprehensive uh, criminal justice reform bill. You know, there had been negative statements put out by the bill from the Department of Justice, from from Sessions, who is no fan of sentencing reform, that basically said, look, you know, General Sessions, if you would like an opinion about this bill, you shouldn't have <laughs> resigned your seat in the right, Senate and right. gone over to the Department of Justice. And, and given it to a Democrat, <laughs> Yeah, ultimately. Well, well, that's yeah. true. I mean, but, you know, which just shows the complicated way that powers trafficked in the city, because it is true that Jeff Sessions no longer has a vote in the U.S. Senate. He's no longer a member of that body. Um, but he does have a close ear to the White House and has the ability to issue veto threats. I mean, veto He's, threats ultimately is what brought down, uh, at least it was one of the factors that brought down uh, the uh, the Dreamer bill. Yeah. You know, He's not without ago. influence. That is, there is no doubt about that. So, so you know, Grassley, it made for good Twitter timelines. But um, which Senator Grassley's Twitter timeline? It's pretty incredible. Is one of the best. Yeah, it's pretty incredible. It's quite. It's very unfiltered. He tweets himself. Yeah, that's right. But I don't know if I'm cautiously optimistic, or or how I feel about the prospects of it. But you know, I, I think we are. We are hopeful that we will be able to make progress. And yeah, so, something's going to happen. Something's gonna, it, well, it seems like something is going to get done. Um, the question will then be, given the political dynamics, and this has always been the case. If you do too little, how many Democrats do you lose? If you do too much, right? So yeah. that that's what's going to be the issue, particularly in the Senate uh, when, you, when you're trying to get to a particular threshold vote number. So, right. um, so we'll, we're going to stay engaged on that one, but that's kind of what's, what's new. And lastly, one thing I want to highlight, uh, I want to tout a big prayer request uh, for the sake of our local church uh, where Travis and I are members. Our church uh, in Washington, D.C. was planted about eight years ago. We'll soon celebrate our eighth anniversary as a church uh, here in D.C., planted out of a church from uh, Wake Forest, North Carolina. And we, as a church body, uh, officially launched a Spanish-speaking church in a a neighborhood in Northwest D.C., and uh, that has been a vision and a prayer request of our pastors and our church for many years, Uh, and that has finally come to fruition, not just meeting and gathering, but they have officially covenanted this week, Uh, and so we're really excited to see that launched. Uh, Crystal and I remember, um, I think it was maybe our first members meeting, uh, again, at a church that was less than a year old, hearing our church planning pastors already cast a vision and a prayer for our own church planning another healthy church um, Mm -hmm. inside the district. And frankly, we thought they were crazy. Uh, But after uh, much prayer and a lot of, uh, a lot of adventure, frankly, uh, that's come to fruition. So really need to see that launched this week. No, it's, it's super cool. It's, I mean, it's amazing to see the long journey. I mean, I've, I've gotten to see, I've, I've been a part of the church for just about a year and it's been amazing to see just the, you know, just how long the preparation is to to launch a church and to plant a new church, you forget about it. But, you know, going back to what we were talking about earlier, mm-hmm. you know, 
it one of the things that's been been on my mind is this church has been has planted is is the need for I mean one a gospel preaching witness um, in this predominantly Hispanic uh, community, but also the reality as we talked about before of the way that immigration has become such a toxic discussion in this country and and also in our communities here in D.C. What a great time for uh, for gospel Christians to move into this community with with a, with an increased intentionality just at the right time that, that or just at the same time rather that so many families are afraid and looking for a solution and looking for a hope because obviously part of what we are working towards and and working for is is a, is a reform to the system of laws that we we think unjustly treat this group of people but we also know that. Uh, that the needs that they have are are much, and that this is true for all of us is is much greater than you know than this. And you know, it reminds me of one of the things that that uh, Dr. Moore talks about that you know we we need to be Christians who are concerned not just with the Sermon on the Mount, but also with the Book of Romans, and and not forget that um, our our work for for immigrants, whether they're Spanish speaking of any kind or, or, or of any kind, doesn't begin and end with the deeds that Jesus commands us to fulfill for our neighbors or to carry out for our neighbors, but, but also with the word and, and the reality that, that blood atonement is an absolute necessity for any of us to be reconciled, uh, to be reconciled to God. So praise God that, that he's raised up a church to do just that. And, and let's pray that uh, many other churches are being planted in Spanish-speaking congregations or Spanish-speaking communities all across the country. This has been Capital Conversations, a podcast of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission. Special thanks to Gary Lancaster for editing the audio and to Marie Dolph for getting this posted online. Show notes for this episode are available at erlc.com, along with additional podcasts and other resources to equip you and your church. 